I will be continuing our study in 1 Kings chapter 12. Uh, last time we read about Solomon turning away from the Lord, and he had a lot of wives who had a lot of gods, and he built a lot of gross idols for them on the high places for them to worship at, and that broke the covenant he had made with God, and so God told him that he was going to give the kingdom to someone else, but that he leave Solomon's son, the tribe of Judah, for David's sake. Then God raised up some enemies against Solomon, and one of them was Jeroboam, so we're going to learn about him today. And God told him that he would give him the ten tribes of Israel, but one was to stay with Solomon's son. And he repeated himself several times to make that clear. So before we get into the word here, uh, I'll just open in prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for this opportunity. I pray that you would just bless the reading and studying of your word today. I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, and let me not speak any words that are just of myself, Lord, but only the words you give me, Lord God. And I pray that you would just be glorified uh, through your, the reading of your word now. In your name I pray, amen. So uh, if we start in chapter 11, verse 41, just to get a little context, it says, Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon... All that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. And Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone to Shechem to make him king. So it happened when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard it. He was still in Egypt, for he had fled from the presence of King Solomon and had been dwelling in Egypt, that they sent and called him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, saying, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now you, therefore, lighten the burdensome service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us, and we will serve you. So he said to them, Depart for three days, then come back to me. And the people departed. So Rehoboam goes up to Shechem to be made king. Uh, you'd think he'd be made king in Jerusalem, but he's kind of meeting these people in their territory. And all Israel comes to make a proposition with him. And it sounds like this is Jeroboam's idea. It kind of mentions him as if he's kind of leading the mob here. And they want some rest after the work that Solomon had them do. He was always having them build something, it seemed like. And so Rehoboam asked for three days to think about his answer here, which is a wise choice. On to verse 6 now it says, Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who stood before his father Solomon while he still lived. And he said, How do you advise me to answer these people? And they spoke to him, saying, If you will be a servant to these people today and serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. So these elders give him good advice here. They have experience. They spend a lot of time with Solomon. And they tell Rehoboam to be a servant to the people, which is interesting because that's how Jesus led his disciples. Let's look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. This is when the disciples are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Here in verse 25 it says, But Jesus called them to himself and said, 
You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus told his disciples that he wanted those in leadership to be servants to others. And whoever wants to be the very top to be a slave who had even less respect and dirtier jobs than a servant. And he wasn't asking them to do the, uh, something that he wasn't willing to do himself. His whole life, on, his whole ministry on earth was being a servant to others. And uh, even at the Last Supper, he put a towel around his waist and washed the disciples' feet, which was the job of a servant. So these elders gave Rehoboam New Testament biblical advice, which is pretty interesting. And so that's some good wisdom there. Back in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse uh, 8, it says, But he rejected the advice which the elders had given him, and consulted the young men who had grown up with him, who stood before him. And he said to them, What advice do you give, and how should we answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us? Then the young men who had grown up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you should speak to this people who have spoken to you, saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter on us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's waist. And now, whereas my father put a heavy yoke on you, I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. And so Rehoboam didn't take the advice of the elders, even before he heard the advice of the young people. He already rejected it the minute he heard it. And he wanted the advice of these young people who grew up with him. And it seems like Rehoboam and his friends are young and inexperienced. But if you look in Second Chronicles twelve thirteen, it says that Rehoboam was actually 41 years old when he became king. So, you know, you should have some kind of common sense here by now. But I get the impression that he spent a lot of time growing up with his friends and no time with his dad. You know, his dad was probably really busy with projects and wives and idols, and he used his wisdom to give advice, and he used his wisdom in his writings. So he probably didn't spend much time investing in uh, his son Rehoboam here. But uh, the advice of his young friends uh, that they gave him was to speak harshly with the people. And they said to make the burden heavier and the whipping more severe. That was their advice. Uh... So Solomon may not have invested much time in Rehoboam, but he did leave him some writings that would have benefited him greatly. And uh, through the first seven chapters of Proverbs, Solomon keeps saying, uh, my son, as if he's writing this to his children. And I think he's being poetical there, saying like, you know, everyone who's inexperienced is kind of like his children there. But this would have been good for Rehoboam to see. He says, my son, hear my inst the instruction of your father. My son, give attention to my words. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. My son, keep your father's commandments. And he just goes on and on throughout those first seven chapters of Proverbs. But it doesn't seem like Rehoboam ever read them. Proverbs 15.1 would have been a very beneficial in this case. It says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And that would be good for him to think about in talking to the people of Israel here. 
Uh, it'd be wise for him to take the advice of the elders instead of the young men, but there's still another option that would have been even better yet. And uh, it can be found in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. It says there, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. And so, uh, David sought the Lord all the time. Solomon at least sought the Lord in the beginning, and it seemed like he sought him again in the end. But the idea doesn't even seem to cross Rehoboam's mind to seek the Lord in this matter. He just asks the cabinet of people here, and then he asks his friends what to do, but he never asks God what to do. He decided to lean on his own understanding and the understanding of his fellow youngsters. So let's see where that gets him here in 1 Kings 12. In verse 12 it says, So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king directed, saying, Come back to me the third day. Then the king answered the people roughly and rejected the advice which the elders had given him. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scourges. So Jeroboam is mentioned again here as if he's the one stirring this up. And Rehoboam quotes his friends almost word for word. Uh, in verse 15 it says, So the king did not listen to the people, for the turn of events was from the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord had spoken by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So this is interesting to me, because it says here that this is all from the Lord, but it's uh, hard for me to see where free will ends and where God's will begins. You know, it seems like Jeroboam and Rehoboam are just doing whatever they want to, but it says that it's from the Lord that this happened. I think James chapter 1, verse 13 will help us kind of understand the balance between the two there. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so temptations don't come from God. They come from our own desires. And desires start in the mind and in the heart. And it's a, such a small idea at first. Uh, the same way a human starts as a small embryo. That's kind of the example it's using here in James. And then, you know, just as a child will grow in the womb until it's too big and it comes out, that's what our, happens with our desires. We have these desires and thoughts, and we, as we keep feeding them, and they get bigger, eventually they come out of us as an action, and we do something. And then, uh, when it, it says when it is full grown, it brings forth death. And so, just as like baby will grow up to a full adult and have kids of their own, you know, it's the same thing with our sin. Our sin will, once we commit a sin with an action, the, uh, when it's full grown, it brings forth death. It's saying that ultimately it'll have kids of its own named consequences. 
and the biggest consequence of all is death. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 to 5, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So thoughts turn into actions, and actions have consequences, uh, but God has given us the necessary mighty weapons to conquer these temptations. And this verse says not to let sinful thoughts and desires run rampant, but to conquer these temptations, or I'm sorry, to take them captive. So you arrest them and put them in jail is kind of what it's saying here. You don't let them grow into uh, so big that they turn into an action. And so looking at these verses, we see that God isn't tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt others. So it's not like God's whispering in Jeroboam's ear and telling him to rebel or whispering in Rehoboam's ear and telling him to be foolish in his decision here. So it looks to me like God simply takes a step back and lets them do what's in their heart to do. It's not like he's pushing them into this, but it's more like he's loosening his grip. So back in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 16, it goes on. Now when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, saying, What share have we in David? And what we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, now see to your own house, O David. So Israel departed to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the children of Israel who dwelt in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was in charge of the revenue, but all Israel stoned him with stones, and he died. Therefore, King Rehoboam mounted his chariot in haste to flee back to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So these ten northern tribes uh, gave up on Rehoboam as their king. They just gave up on him and went back to their homes. And it looks like Rehoboam didn't take them seriously until they killed Adoram, the IRS guy who went to go collect the taxes. And uh, Rehoboam saw that they were serious, and he got in his chariot real fast and ran back to Jerusalem, where uh, the tribe of Judah is there where he's going to rule. And it's going to be like this for the next 400 or so years until they're both carried away captive, the northern tribe and the southern tribe. And um, uh, from here on, we see summaries of the king's lives from Israel and Judah in these first and second kings. And then in First and Second Chronicles, it goes more in depth with the kings of Judah. And there's supposedly another book called the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. And it's talked about throughout this book here. It says, if you want to know more about this king, look in the Chronicles of the Book of Kings of Israel. But that book didn't make it into the Bible because it obviously wasn't inspired by God. So on to verse 20 now. Rehoboam fled back to Jerusalem. Now it came to pass when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had come back, they sent for him and called him to the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none who followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. And when Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against the house of Israel that he might restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, 
Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is from me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord and turned back according to the word of the Lord. So Rehoboam was ready to start this civil war to try and reunite his kingdom. And civil wars are probably the saddest kind of war. It's tragic that brother fights against brother and no one really wins because you're just fighting against yourself. So God intercedes here and tells them that this is his doing. And they obeyed the Lord and spared themselves a lot of pain. In verse 25, it goes on. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also, he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up and offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So Jeroboam makes a mistake here. It says here that he said in his heart, Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So Jeroboam's first mistake is that he's listening to his heart. You know, he should have listened to God instead. Because God promised Jeroboam in the last chapter, he said, I'm going to give ten tribes to you, and they're going to stay with you. I'm going to give one tribe to Judah, they're going to stay with Judah. And uh, God told him that if he obeys him and walks in his ways, that he will establish his kingdom just like he established the kingdom of David. So Jeroboam doesn't need to be afraid of these people returning to Rehoboam. He can just have faith in God's word. But uh, he's afraid that when they go to make their yearly sacrifices that they'll remember the good old times of one kingdom and just return to them. But he should have taken that thought captive. Let's see. God made it really clear. He kept repeating it to him to make sure he understood it. And so his desire here is going to conceive and give birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, is going to bring forth death. So verse 28, this is what he's going to do about his fear here. Therefore, the king asked advice, made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Hear your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set them one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan Two golden calves, really? uh, His campaign slogan here is, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. It's too hard. So he was making it more convenient for them. He was putting these two little idols that they could worship instead of God. And uh, there are a lot of choices to make in life. And a lot of times the easier choice is the wrong choice. Usually the harder choice to make is the one you should do. And I learned pretty early on that it's not worth it to go to a convenience store. If you need something from Walmart, you know, you can find it at a gas station, but they're going to charge you a lot more for it. And uh, this convenience store that Jeroboam is going to set up is going to cost the people a high price. So Jeroboam sets up two golden calves, and he said, Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. 
And that's almost exactly what Aaron said when he made the golden calf for the people of Israel. In, uh, in Exodus 19, I'm just going to summarize this, but the people of Israel experienced God. There was the thundering and the lightning and the dark cl cloud that covered Mount Horeb. And God came down in fire and the mountain quaked and the people were afraid and they said, speak to Moses, but don't speak to us. We don't want to hear your voice, God. It's too scary. And so Moses went up on the mountain and for the next uh, 14 chapters or so, God's giving Moses the Ten Commandments and he's giving him how, telling him how to build the tabernacle, which is a picture of heaven. And he's giving them these other laws so that they can uh, be closer to God so that they can see God and know him more, so that they can be like God. And so it's a real blessing that Moses is going to come down with this mountain with. But in Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. So Aaron, he took their earrings, he made this golden calf, they worshipped it, and they partied and sinned, and God sent Moses down the mountain, and Moses was angry, he broke those Ten Commandments, he burned the calf, he ground it up and scattered it on the water and made the people drink it. Then the tribe of Levi went out, and they killed 3,000 people, and the Lord also sent a plague on the people. So Israel worshipped this golden calf because it was easier than waiting for Moses to come down the mountain but it had these big consequences. And it's going to be the same for the people of Israel here who are worshiping the golden calf all over again. The people saw the mighty power of God on the mountain, but they quickly forgot it and decided to worship a golden calf. And that's such a weird thing that it's a, a why a golden calf? You know, it's a, that's a baby cow. You'd think they'd at least worship a bull. But they think this little cow brought them up out of Egypt is what they're saying here. And so Jeroboam should have known this story from Exodus and uh, learned from it. But instead he's letting history repeat itself. In Jeremiah 2 verse 13, God talks about Israel and Judah's idolatry. This is years down the road, but he says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God sees idol worship as two evils. He says, first you forsake me, and then you make your own God. So God counts it as two wrongs. And uh, there's a difference between a fountain of living water and a broken cistern. A fountain would be a natural source of water coming up out of the ground. It would be pure, uncontaminated it would be cold and refreshing. It would be constant. It wouldn't run out. And if people in this culture found a fountain, they would build a city around it because that might be the only good water source for miles around. And that's how God's describing himself. He said he's the fountain of living water. He's this living water that's even better than fountain water, but uh, God is both of these things. And Jesus talks about living water in John chapter 4. When he talks to the woman at the well, in verse 10, he tells her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And in verse 13 to 14, he says further, Whoever drinks of this water, talking about the well, 
they're going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I'm going to give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of living water, springing up to eternal life. So God is a fountain of living water, and if you drink the water, you will never thirst again. And God causes a fountain springing up inside of us to eternal life. He's talking about spiritual satisfaction there. God is the only satisfaction. Did these golden calves satisfy or fulfill the Israelites? No. And can we find satisfaction apart from Christ? No, we can't. So God's the fountain of living water, but a cistern is a well that you would carve out of a rock or that you would dig and build up with stones. And it would be to catch the rainwater and store it. But things can fall into a well. You might have to filter out the bugs because they're thirsty too. And the water might be a little stale, but a cistern that can hold no water is of no use. And that's what Jesus describes them as, a broken cistern. And it's just a pit at that point. And it sounds like when Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers, it was actually a broken cistern that he was thrown into. Because it mentions that there was no water in it. And when uh, Jeremiah was lowered into a pit during his ministry, it sounds again like another broken cistern. So those are two examples of a broken cistern. And instead of holding water, they were just used as a prison cell and a place of despair. So Jeroboam and all the Israelites forsook God, the fountain of living water. And when they made these golden calves, they made themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. However, there's a lot of verses in Jeremiah where God pleads with people to return to him in repentance and return to that fountain of living water. So it doesn't have to end there. It doesn't have to stay a broken cistern. You can go back to the fountain of living water. Back in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 31, it says, Jeroboam also made shrines in the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was the day of, that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And at Bethel he installed the priest of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel, and on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart, he ordained a feast for the children of Israel, and offered sacrifices on the altar, and burned incense. So he's making other idolatrous places for the people to worship in case the calves aren't convenient enough. And uh, he has his own class of priests here. If you turn to Second Chronicles chapter 11, it tells us a little more detail about that. In Second Chronicles 11 verse 13, it says, And from all their territories, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel took their stand with him, talking about Rehoboam, for the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. Then he appointed for himself priests for the high places, for the demons, and for the calf idols which he had made. And after the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to the seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So they strengthened the kingdom of Judah and made Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, strong for three years because they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. 
So God promised Jeroboam that he would give him those ten tribes and that Rehoboam would keep his one tribe. And that left one tribe unaccounted for because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And I, my guess was last time we looked at that, that the tribe of Levi was to stay neutral so that they could continue to minister to people on both sides and not have to pick which one they're going to be. And uh, the people could stay close to God in the midst of this divided kingdom then. But Jeroboam kicked the Levites out, so he caused the people of Israel to go even further from God. He selected his own priests for the high places, the demons and the golden calves. It doesn't take anyone special like a Levite to do that. Anyone can be a priest for that. Um, but such as set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came to Jerusalem and sacrificed to the Lord God of their fathers. And this actually strengthened the kingdom of Judah. So originally Jeroboam did all this to try and keep people from going back to Judah, but in the end it backfired and caused more people to go there than probably would have. And so Jeroboam becomes a poster child for sinners for the rest of these chronicles of the kings here. When someone else becomes a king, it says, And they did, did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of Jeroboam. So every time someone does something bad, Jeroboam is mentioned again. And uh, he really establishes a sad legacy in his sin here. And so Jeroboam and Rehoboam, they both had some serious problems. I think Rehoboam's problem was that he didn't seek the Lord. His father Solomon said in Proverbs 1-7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of uh, knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Rehoboam didn't seem to fear the Lord in the beginning, and he acted foolishly. He didn't have that knowledge or wisdom that comes from God. And that was his downfall that we looked at today. And Jeroboam's problem was a lack of faith. If he would have believed that God was going to do what he said he was going to do, he would not have made those golden calves. And God also told him that if he followed him he would, and walked in obedience, he would establish his kingdom like he did for David. But he didn't have faith in that promise, and he walked in rebellion and disobedience. So faith is very valuable, and in the Gospels, we see Jesus marvel at the faith some people had. Can you believe that, that Jesus would just marvel at their faith? Like, what surprises God? But uh, the disciples always seem to be uh, impressing Jesus or getting, try to get him excited about something. They would try to impress him with questions, like the time they saw a man who was blind from birth in John chapter 9. They said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And they must have expected Jesus to applaud them for knowing why people are born blind. But uh, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And he healed the man. And there was a whole chapter in the Bible that will last forever, revealing the works of God done in that man. In another time, in Mark chapter 13, verse 1 to 2, it says, Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And, they, and Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So the disciples were all excited about seeing this temple and these buildings. And they said, look, Jesus, what do you think of that? And he was kind of like, uh, it's not going to last. <laughs> like, you didn't get excited about it. 
and they seems like they could never get him, uh, never impress him. But he marveled at faith. There were times when someone had faith and believed in him that he would do this thing for them, and he marveled at it. And he also marveled at a lack of faith. In Mark chapter six, verse four to six, when Jesus was rejected at Nazareth because it was his hometown and they knew him, it says. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could not do, he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. What would it have been like for Jeroboam if he had faith that would have caused the Son of Man to marvel? What choices would he have made instead? And what would happen in my life if I had that kind of faith? So I had to ask myself that. There's a story of Hudson Taylor. I guess you guys probably know him. But uh, he was a missionary to China. And when he was still training to be a missionary in England, he left his family home. You know, he had a lot of provisions there. His family was pretty good off. And he went and lived in the slums. Because he's like, if I'm going to make it out in China, I need to really test my own faith to make sure I have enough faith. And so he lived in this slum, and he was working really hard as a doctor's apprentice. And he, on Sundays, he would preach a message, and then he would go to all the houses and visit people and minister to them. And uh, he, was, he wanted to strengthen his faith, so if he, his boss forgot to pay him a paycheck, he wouldn't remind him. He'd just pray about it and ask God to remind him. And so money got really tight sometimes because his boss would forget to pay him all the time. And he got down to his last... Uh, crown I think I don't know how much that's worth but he went to this poor house this guy called him and said pray for my wife she's dying and they had all these kids that were starving and uh, as he's praying for her ministering to her he's praying to God too and he says if only this crown was divided up into quarters I would so gladly give them a fourth of this money even though it's the last money I have and then uh as he continues to pray for the people, he gets more convicted. He said, if only it was broken in half, I would give them half of this. And then he goes on and says, I'd give them three-fourths of it. And finally, he just has to give them all of it. He's like, I can't keep this. They need this more than I do. So he gives away his last, uh, last coin there. And uh, he felt suddenly just so relieved. He's like, he was so convicted about it. So after he gave it to him, he felt so relieved. And uh, he went home, and there was a letter for him in the mail. And uh, the address was Spear, who it was from, so we didn't even know who sent it to him. But it had like a pair of mittens and a note that said, give these to someone who needs them. And out of the uh, one glove fell this coin that was like ten times the amount of the other coin he had. <laughs> and God provided for him. But he had faith. He had faith in God that God was going to help him. I'd like to read uh, Hebrews chapter 11 real quick, if you'll turn there with me. And uh, the writer talks about faith here, and he starts with a definition of faith, and then he goes on to talking about how we need faith to believe in uh, God's creation of the world. And then he goes on to a lot of examples of people from the Old Testament who had faith. And he just summarizes these different people here. <clears throat> and earlier we looked at uh, temptation. And we looked at 
how it's something that starts with a desire inside of you, and it gets so big that it turns into an action, and that action has big consequences. And I want you to notice here as we read through these people that faith works in a similar way. We have faith inside of us, and then we act on that faith, and then there's great rewards for acting on faith. Um, let's see here. <clears throat> Make sure I didn't miss anything. Just to clarify more, it starts as faith inside us, which conceives and gives birth to righteous action. Because as we believe in God, it affects us in the way we live. And those actions done in faith, when they are full grown, bring forth children of their own called rewards and ultimately eternal life. So let's read uh, Hebrews chapter 11 here and look for the faith, look for the action, and look for the reward of these people's lives. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive in his inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they will seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, Isaac, your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, 
from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention to the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should be made not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you give us faith to believe in you, Lord God, that you help our lack of faith, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the plans you have for us, Lord for all your abundant provisions, Lord, and your healings. Lord God, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to take every thought captive, Lord, to not to walk in sin, Lord, but to walk in faith, Lord Jesus. Please do strengthen our faith, Lord God. I just thank you for your word, Lord, and for what we were able to learn of you today, Lord, what we were able to see of you today in your word. Thank you, Lord, that you are the fountain of living water, Lord God, and that you call us to us. And that if we uh, stray from you, you call us to return to you again, Lord. I just thank you for that. 
I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in this last worship song, Lord, and that you would bless the fellowship of these saints here today. In your name I pray. Amen.